millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life and death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to this week's lovely podcast. And I'm Peter Hart, and with me is Gary Bain. What, what are we doing this week, Gary? Well, firstly, Peter, I'd like to thank you for inviting me back to your lovely home. Well, you've had quite a lot of decoration since I was last here. Indeed, indeed. The, the, the little woman's getting littler all, every day with the hard work she's put into uh, putting in the new doors. I like the new doors. I'm not quite sure about having the locks on the outside, though. Yes, that is a bit strange, but she insisted on it in my room. And uh, you've introduced the podcast today, Pete. Why haven't you introduced Peter Hart's Military History Podcast? Ah, oh, that stupid music thing at the start says it. Well, today we're talking about uh, the South Knots as ours again. It's another one in the series, which I hope our listeners are enjoying. And today we're talking about the Battle of Knightsbridge. The Battle of Knightsbridge? What's that? Something something to do with London shopping? No, apparently it's something to do with a sign in the desert. <laughs> right. And this is going to be the first of two on the, the Battle of Knightsbridge, isn't it? Yeah, so imaginatively we've called this one Knightsbridge One. What we called the other one? Knightsbridge 2. Our imagination knows no bounds, Gary. <laughs> it doesn't. So, uh, so, so where are we? Where have we got to? Well, uh, 
Operation Crusader was the operations that had relieved Tobruk, although the, the South Otazars always re- relieved the, always believed they'd, uh, they'd saved the uh, Eighth Army they found wandering about in the desert. That was their perception of it. And they pushed uh, the uh, Rommel and the Axis forces all the way back to El Aguila. Um, but, um, An Operation Crusader ran from uh, 18th of November through to the end of December 1941, didn't it? Just yes. to be clear about the dates. Oh, that's, that's very helpful to our public. It is. I'm a helpful kind of guy. Oh, you're so helpful. Anyway, something's happening. What, what's happening in the world that might, uh, that might, uh, that might embugger the, the Allies in the desert? Well, yeah, there was a slight sort of fly in the ointment in that uh, uh, war was declared on Japan following their assault on the United States at Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941, which is why I made the point about what the dates of Crusader were. Uh, so any reinforcements that were originally intended for North Africa um, actually went to the Far East instead. So Singapore and, and, and just just generally to the Far East. Yeah, that's what I said to the Far East. That's very clear. You really got a grip on this this week. I Thank feel, you. I feel indebted. <laughs> but the the overall situation, naval and air situation in the Mediterranean was continuing to deteriorate. So, you know, it's not that things have got better and that they're able to take these forces to the Far East. It's just that the circumstances force it. Now, uh, so what are the South Nazis doing? Well, they're having a well-earned rest. They've been in Tobruk throughout the whole of the siege from April through, well, effectively through to December, haven't they? Uh, and they're having a bit of a rest. They came back to, to Hag Camp. That's not That's near Cairo. Uh, and most got to leave in Cairo where they did what soldiers do, I would imagine. I can't think what they do there. Um, and uh, one one perspective we've got is from one of our all-time favourites, which is uh, the lovely Ray Ellis, who'd been promoted to sergeant. And for the first time, he was uh, he was able to go into the sergeant's mess. And he's got a lovely story about about what, what life was like in the sergeant's mess. You've got to tell that, aren't you, Gary? Yeah, so Sergeant Ray Ellis, 425 Battery, 107th RHA. When you got there, you ordered a crate of beer and you put it at the side of you. You didn't go buying rounds like you do in the pub. Everybody had a crate and you drank your own. Talking and drinking, laughing and joking. The officers used to come in. They always stood at the door for a second. And someone would say, oh, hello, sir, do come in. One night, we were there at about one o'clock in the morning when Peter Birkin fell off his chair into the sand. We picked him up carried him to his tent and put him to bed. About 20 minutes later, he crawled in under the tent and said, who's had the audacity to put me to bed? That was Major Peter Birkin, uh, who was uh, one of the great figures of the South Nazar and a member of the Birkin family. You were asking about them, the racing driver, yep. uh, and Jane Birkin, who was on Je Tame, which would have informed much of your early sexual experiences. Yeah, and I believe he had a number of brothers in the same uh, in the same uh, cousins, regiment. Cousins, cousins, but his family, the Birkin family, had been there for ages. They were in the First World War as as well. Fantastic, really interesting bunch. Now uh, they're being re-equipped as well, and uh, and <laughs> and uh, how were they re-equipped, Gary? Well, they got brand new set of twenty-five pounders and quad gun towers. Now listeners will have noticed. <laughs> That in previous podcasts, I've referred to that as quad gun towers. I was rather hoping you would again. In my defence, it is spelt exactly the same. It is spelt the same, but you have evaded that cunning elephant trap I set for you. By writing two words on my notes. Toe, followed by ers. Right. 
Now, uh, in February, they moved to Sidi Bish, which is near Alexandria. Again, this is something that, if you're interested in Gallipoli, of course, it's very. It, it, this is, these are the camps that all the, the, the troops were in, and they joined the 22nd Armored Brigade, commanded by Brigadier Carr. Uh, and this is the Second Royal Gloucestershire Hussars, the Third County of London Yeomanry, Fourth County of London Yeomanry. They're as imaginative as we are, Gary. And the 50th Reconnaissance Regiment. Words which will never pass my lips again in this talk, because I don't know anything whatsoever about them. Uh, I'm sure they're a fine body of men, though. I'm fairly certain that all of them were. March, they moved to Beni Yusuf camp near Cairo, and uh, here there's a there's a real. He was my favourite comedian, Beni Yusuf. <laughs> did make you laugh, didn't he? He did. What was your favourite joke by him? Uh, it was the one about the camp near Cairo. <laughs> um, so uh, Benny, they moved to Beni Yusuf, and uh, they reorganised there. They, 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 this is quite interesting. Pro- probably it's because they want a battery to go with each of the. Uh, the cavalry regiments, uh, and uh, they get 200 reinforcements and they're completely reorganised. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Seeley um, wants to spread the newcomers throughout the whole b- battery. And the end result is you have 425 battery, that's commanded by Major Peter Birkin, we've already talked about. That's the A and E troops. Um, then there's uh, so, so one old from the A and one new E. 426 Battery, which was under Major William Barber. I interviewed him. He, he survived. He lived a long time. But he was a miserable old bugger, and I'm afraid I didn't get much out of him. He was getting old, very old, by the time I interviewed him. Um, you were a miserable bugger when I interviewed you, and you were quite young at the time. Although you are older now. It's strange how that happens. Uh, that was C and F Troops. So C was the, uh, the the old one. And then 520 Battery was under Major Jerry Birkin. Um, who is the cousin of Peter Birkin, and that had B and D troops. And you'll notice, Gary, that they are both old troops. So in one sense, 520 Battery, the, the new battery, are the veterans. Uh, that I found that interesting. Uh, Major B- Jerry Birkin, we haven't much talked about him before. He was, uh, he was rated very highly by the lads. Uh, he was regarded as brave. He was competent. He could, uh, he had a great, air of command he could give orders without shouting but he had the sort of aura that meant that the orders were obeyed something that your officers were unable to uh, exercise with you in the past and uh, he 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 was a really good officer and and i hope he does well in the battle to come um, and although a birkin they, they he didn't the men didn't think he looked down on them yes uh, because he is a, a a knob if you like he's uh, so a mutual family. friend of ours would say landed gentry landed gentry yes landed gentry perfect not aristocracy aristocracy um now uh the, it, because of their new mobile ro- role uh, liaising with the uh, cavalry regiments uh the uh, battery commanders and op officers were issued with marmon herrington armored cars they got the turrets off to uh, allow them to act as an op vehicle now I've got a lovely quote here from Frank Knowles, Lance Bombardier Frank Knowles, who's in 425 battery. And he didn't have much, you, you as, you as Frank don't have much faith in these, do you? Whilst it was so called armoured, it wouldn't resist a normal 303 bullet. One of the lad's rifles went off accidentally and it went through one wall of the armoured car and through a heavy duty battery on the other side. So not, Armor. The armor was a waste of time. If you if you think about who you're going to meet in the desert, which is artillery and other tanks, and it's not much use to man the beast really. 
Late April, they, the South Nazis asked that the three batteries move up to join the rest of 22nd Armoured Brigade at Fort Capuzzo. That's near the Libyan border, the Egyptian-Libyan border. And that there's a lot of training in box, box training. Uh, and this is different for them. This is the new theory. Um, each battery is given to one specific tank regiment. Uh, and uh, they, 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 these regiments are normally at Grants with 75mm tanks, uh, but there's still also a lot of uh, Crusaders with their stupid two-pounder useless guns. They're no good. Um, they are, the, the 107th moved forward with them into the desert, and they got used to moving as part of a brigade box. So what's a, a brigade box, Peter? Well, really I find it difficult it. to explain. It's basically they just are together, working and moving as a form, as a brigade. Uh, one thing that worried the gunners is there seemed to be this idea that you could use guns as a sort of tempting outer bit, which would tempt German tanks to, towards them. Uh, I'm not sure about this, and I don't think they'd thought a lot of it through. Um, and there's, a, there's a lot of chuntering in, 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 in about the whole box formations amongst the regiments as they move up. Um, the, the British, were, were, they're still plagued by logistical problems because, of course, their communications go all the way back to Egypt and, of course, from Egypt all the way back to England and all, all the, empire, the rest of the empire at the time. Um, and uh, the, 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 there's loads and loads of problems for them in the Mediterranean, which, which, pervert, which conversely allows the Germans to get reinforcements. As the, as the situation deteriorates in the Mediterranean for the British, of course it allows the Germans to move more reinforcements and uh, fuel and, and such likes to reach the desert. Uh, and uh, and uh, although Rommel had been defeated in, opera, in uh, the Crusader uh, campaign, he wasn't, he wasn't out of it, was he? Uh, he? He's still well and truly in it. Uh, and indeed in February 1942, he's, he's no longer a uh, um, the Africa Corps, it, it becomes a Panzer Army Africa, uh, an army, although everyone still calls it the Africa Corps, as far as I can see. Um, yeah, and in the Second interim, World War historian. And in the interim, he'd launched a counterattack, hadn't he, in January? Yeah, he yeah. recaptured Benghazi and then Timini. Uh, yeah, and we'd only just managed to stabilise the British line uh, based on, well, it's the coastal town of Gazala, and it goes inland for about 30 miles. Um, um, it, it's it, this is this is thirty miles to the west of Tobruk, west east. Yes, I do get those mixed up a bit. Thirty miles west of Tobruk, and it stretches in from Gazala uh, about fifteen miles, and then there's a detached strong point at Bir Hakim. That's fifty miles from the sea, and then there's the desert, and that, that it's like there's always that a great open flank of the desert if you can get across it. Um, they're in brigade boxes. Now, perhaps you now would like to explain what a brigade box is, Gary. No. So, well, basically, they're dug in behind <laughs> strong minefields and there's further deep minefields linking the boxes together. And, as, you know, in an earlier conversation, Peter, I asked you, were they mutually supportive? They're not. They're, they're quite isolated, these boxes. And it had two further rearward defensive boxes, one defending the town of Acroma and the other the Knightsbridge box, which was so named after the earlier mentioned Knightsbridge sign, which marks the junction of uh, some desert tracks there. Yeah. Now, it's funny, uh, in our, our, our conversations beforehand are always, always very interesting. I'm sure the, re the listeners would love to have been there. Uh, but you made a great point. And this, it, we've been doing a lot, we did a lot on Waterloo. And this reminded you, didn't it, of, of the squares 
it, yeah, it's, it's, it, when we were talking, I, I asked, you know, uh, did it remind you of the, the formations of Infantry Square? Um, and you said that was a great point. I thought perhaps not, but, um, but it does sound a bit like that. It's, it's a square in isolation. Um, and, and they're not actually able to support each other. Not properly, no. There's a big gap between them. Now, so where are the, the British, uh, the 13th Corps, commanded by, uh, Lieutenant General William Gott, uh, supported by the 1st Armoured Brigade. They're, they're holding the basic line. That, that's the line, uh, uh, the front line. Then they've got the 30th Corps under Lieutenant G- General Charles Norrie and the 1st Armoured Division, uh, they're back on the Knightsbridge. They've got they've got the Knightsbridge box behind them, and then there's a Seventh Armoured Division under Major General Frank Messervy further south. That was a bit garbled, but it'll do. We'll we'll put a map up. And, uh, yeah, I think it will be necessary for this, Pete. Yeah, because sometimes I'll get confused. The Tobruk Fortress has got the Second Af- Af- South African Division in it, and and the Army Reserve was the Fifth Indian Division. Now uh, the Twenty Second Armoured Brigade. Is, of which the South Nuts Hazars are part of, they're part of 1st Armoured Division. And they're, they've, as you mentioned, they've moved forward into the featureless area of stony desert around this stupid sign. It's just a sign. It's, I've seen a picture of it. It's basically a, a can <laughs> with uh, cement in it, I presume. And it says, Nightbridge. Uh, it's just a, a way of marking something. Now, 425 and 426 batteries uh, are close to the, to the junction. But 520 battery and the, their, their, uh, their cavalry, the second Royal Garrison, sorry, Royal Garrison, Royal Gloucestershire Hussars, uh, are some distance to the southwest and they're closer to the Beer El Harmat minefield. Again, this is going to be complicated unless you look at the map. Now, um, the, here we've got 520 battery. What were we? They're the experienced two, uh, uh, troops. They're, they're, ex- they're, they're desert veterans, aren't they? What could go wrong, Gary? They've seen everything the enemy can throw at them, and it, they, they've looked it in the eye and spat in its face. What could go wrong, Gary? What? What could go wrong? What indeed? Are you implying something's going to go wrong? Well, uh, now both sides are preparing for a major offensive. Uh, the, the Axis forces, they've got 90,000 men, 560 tanks, 542 aircraft. You can tell I'm reading because you know I can't remember anything like this. Uh, the uh, British had 110,000 men, that's 20,000 more. 843 tanks, loads more tanks, but they're not as good. How many uh, more? Uh, a lot more. At <laughs> 604 aircraft, which is a bit more. Uh, uh, about 60 more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Orkinlet was planning to attack, uh, uh, but he, he, his logistical problems caused him to postpone it. And as a result, Rommel strikes first. And his plan is called, called, is called Operation Venice. It began at 2 o'clock, 1400 on 26th of May, 1942. Basically, the Italian 10th and 21st Corps would launch head-on attacks on the British 13th Corps defensive boxes, trying to convince everybody that that was the main attack. But it wasn't. The 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions, that's Germans, Gary, would swirl round to the south and strike hard north, behind the British line, uh, in an attempt to destroy the 7th and 1st Armoured Divisions, which were lurking behind the British front line. This would cut off the retreat of the infantry of 13th Corps, who'd then be attacked from front and rear. 
the and meanwhile the 90th Light Division would swing even further around to try and sever the British supply lines round about Tobruk. Not very aware of that. It's not a big part of the story. Now, were the South Nazis prepared for this, Gary? Were they ready? Did they know what was happening? No, I mean they they had no no idea of the seriousness of, of the threat. Uh, they were more focused on their their next moves rather than what the Germans were doing. And uh, they were surely safe. They were miles behind the lines, weren't they? What could go wrong? And and, and anyway, uh, here I'm going to be Gunner Bill Hunt. Now, I'm amazed you gave him to me because he's one of your favourites uh, with his favourite, with your favourite quote, as I remember it, uh, uh, who's Rommel and what's a panzer? Which I think was... Uh, Summed him up, really. Anyway, Bill Hutton says this. Colonel Seeley came round, and I heard him telling everybody we're having a very early move on the morning, so nobody need dig in. Well, that suited me. I wasn't very fond of digging. I was very pleased about that. Uh, now, there, there would have been safer in slit trenches, but it was all quiet. It all seemed calm. Now, you're going to be Lance Sergeant Harold Harper. He was a wonderful old boy. I can't tell you what a nice bloke he was, but a great soldier, a truly great soldier. He went right through the ranks, right to uh, Regiment Sergeant Major, I think, by the end. Now, tell me about him, Gary. What, what does he say? Sergeant Major Earnshaw, the Battery Sergeant Major, and myself went across to one of the B Troops positions and sat in the back of a 1,500-weight truck. We're under the direction of Sergeant Bland, who was an excellent bridge player. We were taught the elements of contract bridge by the help of a hurricane lamp. When we left just after midnight and wound our way across the moonlit desert, you could have heard a pin drop. And and I just this is the thing. Uh, Humour may be short now, but because I, I just want to point out that Sergeant Patrick Bland would be dead within hours. He was killed by a German shell within hours of teaching contract bridge uh, to, to, to poor old Harper. Well, not poor old Harper, lucky old Harper. Now, while the Germans, while, while the South Nazis were sleeping, the Germans swooped round. They were driving round. On the morning of the 27th of May, the mass tanks, the panzers of the 15th, 21st Panzer Divisions, are swinging north to attack the 1st Armoured Division in the Knightsbridge Box area. And this is a quote from, Land, from Harold Harper again. So, so what's happening to him in the morning? So he's had his night's kit. What happens now? Lance Sergeant Harold Harper, D Troop, Flight 20 Battery, 107th RHA. You didn't mention it. we just about finished breakfast when we saw this dust cloud on the horizon. Paid no attention whatsoever. Assumed it was some of our troops on manoeuvres. We were attached to the Royal Gloucestershire Hussars. The guns were just parked with their vehicles. We had lagered for the night. Now, lager's a uh, South African term, and it... It's for, it means an encampment, and it's usually made up of wagons, a bit like the old cowboy films. Uh, we had lagered for the night, expecting to move next morning. Then along came the battery commander, Major Jerry Birkin, and he said, I think they're Germans. He gave instructions for the D Troop OP to follow him. Now, so... Uh that what's happening is you've got the battery commander and the D Troop OP, they're going out. The D Troop OP was Ivor Birkin, uh, who was the brother of the D Troop, uh, 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 of, uh, 
the battery commander, Major uh, Jerry Birkin. Now, Jerry Birkin's driver was bombardier Bobby Feekins. Uh, he's also, of course, then 520 battery. And Bobby Feekins, uh, he was a one, he was a Londoner, so you can do this in a London accent, unlike that Nottinghamshire accent you used for uh, uh, Birkin. He was up through the turret, looking out of the back of the turret, facing the Germans. So that's Burke. Jerry Birkin, is that? Yeah. Yeah. The next round came straight inside the armoured car. I didn't realise it had hit us, and I turned, and there were the two radio operators without heads, absolutely nothing from the shoulders. I had blood and muck all over me. Jerry slumped into my arms, and he was actually dead at that point, hit right in the abdomen. I was wounded in the legs. On the interbattery radio, I said, we've been hit, we've been hit. This is terrible. The, the beheaded radio operators, I looked them up, they're Gunner White and Gunner William Lloyd. Uh, now, there's a third signal in there, Gunner J.H. Wright, and he, he was unscathed, uh, but he was panicking, and I don't blame anybody for panicking. Bobby Fickins, though, was in a terrible state, wasn't he? Go on, carry on uh, in your role as Bobby Fickins. I was bleeding profusely from shrapnel fragments all round my legs. So I decided to make back to the battery to get out of a sitting duck position. I said to the chap, I didn't even look round, hang on. I slammed it into gear to try and get out of a sitting duck position and get back to the battery. I tried to put my foot on the accelerator because I was losing the strength in my legs and I hit a slip trench. It just went straight in and I can assure you it was a very nasty smack. I turned round and there was nobody there. I wondered what had happened. I crawled out as best I could, pulling myself out, and as I was hanging on the back of the vehicle, when Sergeant Harper came racing across to us, I suppose I was in a bit of shock. Headless bodies. The inside of my armoured car was just nothing but blood and flesh. Bits of body all over the place. Now, what's happened to the gunner right? The other the other surviving member of the crew, was he, he'd, he'd panicked and jumped out the back and probably been run over by Fekins as he crashes into this sort of trench or hole in the desert. And that, that broke his, his leg. And so he's, he's left trapped under the, the wheels of the armoured car. Now, Harold Harpy and, Jer- and Jerry Birkin's brother... Ivor Birkin, they're, 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 they're running across from their mom and Harrington. And this is what uh, Lance Sergeant Harry Harper, Harold Harper says. We'd only gone about six or 700 yards when we heard a gabbling on the battery commander's radio, which immediately told us something was wrong. Captain Ivor Birkin jumped out and dashed across 50 to 60 yards. Now, Harper, he's trying to follow. And, and this is what this is. It's almost like a film script, this, because you, things keep going wrong. Anyway, he's trying to follow, and then there's another calamity. What happens next? Out of a cloud of sound, sand came a Royal Gloucester Hussars Grant tank. We hit it head on, and we literally bounced back five or six yards. I was standing in the turret, and I was crushed. The impact broke my ribs down the right-hand side. The next thing we saw, our engine was on fire. We dashed across and told Captain Birkin what had happened. Then we were stranded. Now, when he gets there, there's an absolutely dreadful scene. And this is when he meets Feekins, isn't he, again? So, Lance Sergeant Harold Harper goes on to say, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Major Jerry Birkin lay flat on the floor, obviously dead. I went to the back and opened up the two doors at the back of the armoured car. Apparently... The armour-piercing shell had gone clear through the middle of the battery commander as he was standing up and then chopped off the heads of the two radio operators. All you could see was these two lads, their hands still holding their mouthpieces. 
although their heads had rolled onto the floor. A bit of a gory sight. My biggest problem was to persuade Captain Ivor Birkin to leave his brother. He was in very distressed state. I said, Come along, you must come back. He said, No, you get back, I'll see what I can do. Now this is a terrible scene, and Harper's desperately struggling. The, the accounts all tie up really well. Uh, he's trying to get right from under the wheels. Uh, um, and by then, Birkin, Ivor Birkin, has been wounded in the, the ankle. Because uh, the German tanks are getting closer. Uh, it's absolute chaos. And in that chaos, neither of them have managed to get a message back, have they, Gary? No, nobody's got a message back to uh, to the 520 battery, or certainly not a coherent one as to what's happening. Well, what is their preoccupation, do you think, for Harper and, and Feekins by this time? Well, they're finding themselves in the middle of a full-scale battle. And, you know... They, they need to get back out of the way. And I think that Harper actually picks up in the end either Birkins, gives him a sort of fireman's lift to carry him 30 yards to get back with the other survivors. So it's just survival, isn't it? Now? It's absolute it's the... survival. Now, they managed to get on the back of a, a stray Crusader tank. I mean, you might say, where's this Crusader camp? Wait, tank camp? It's one of the Royal Gloucester Hazards. Uh, and people, nobody knows what's happening. That's the thing. And this is Harper's report again of what happens. Isn't this like a film script at times? It just links together so beautifully. Carry on. The tank commander had no idea we were there and kept firing. We had to keep dodging as best we could when the turret and barrels kept swinging round. I don't know quite how we managed it. How we didn't get thrown off is a miracle. We slithered around and hoped for the best. Hung on to what you could. I remember the gun firing within about six inches of my ear. One of our fellows fell off and we thought he'd been crushed to death. Most of us received wounds of some description from the German shelling, although at the time we weren't aware of their extent. There was too much happening. Later, I found I'd got some shrapnel in my left knee. Now, the man who'd fallen off the tank was uh, Bobby Bobby Feekins. Uh, it's no surprise. He'd already been badly hurt in the uh, in, in Birkin's uh, car, armoured car. Uh, now, to, what? So he, it's a great account from him. Tell us that. Ivan Birkin's driver was hanging on to me like grim death with the fear of God in us. We hadn't gone very far when he was hit right across the bottom. When you get hit like that on the cheeks of your ass, the immediate thing is to grab them. Of course, in doing this, he let me go, and I fell off the tank. The tank continued on its way, and I was left out in the open, miles from anywhere in no man's land. The pain had started to come on. I don't think I was paralysed, but I just couldn't use them, my legs. I had a great gaping hole in my right leg, and my left leg and knee was full of shrapnel. So there he is. He's alone in the desert. It, I cannot imagine. I remember. I mean, he is quite literally alone. He is. I remember when I was in his. I remember he lived in uh, what's that place? Harrow on the Hill. And I remember when he told me this story, and I was just sat there looking at him, and I could not, could not put myself in that situation at all. He was basically trying to hide behind tank tracks, <laughs> just keep out of sight. Carry on. Carry on. So what's Feekin say next? He says, after a while, another tank came by, saw me out in the open and came over. He said, what the hell are you doing here? I said, have an afternoon cup of tea, you silly bugger. Well, he said, well, I'm sorry, old chap. I'm going into action now, but on my way back, I'll come and pick you up. Away he went, an hour and a half to two hours of hell on earth, watching the shells drop all around me, but none too close. 
just wondering about the things you've done and the things you'd like to do. I hadn't given up. I think my mind was too full. An element of fear because you didn't know what was going to happen. But he did come back and I felt heaven had opened up. One of the crew got out, lifted me on and made me safe and they drove me back. And he was taken back to first aid post. Now, I remember the further story he goes on to say when he was in a Tobruk hospital and they were going to amputate his leg. He was that badly wounded. And he said, "You're the, I'm the last person you're dealing with, he said. I'm the last one you're dealing with. You've been working all night, doctor. Will you make a special effort to save my leg? And he did, and they saved it. Uh, it's a great story. And it's in my book. What's my book called, Gary? At Close Range. Is it good? I don't know. <laughs> that copy I gave you three months ago. <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil this podcast surprise. Uh, uh, by the way, i just make a point. You'll notice the humour. This is awful. What Feekins has experienced is unbelievable. The horror of being inside that armoured car. How does Feekins respond? Well, he's responding with humour, but that's probably how he coped with it. I mean, otherwise, you'd be, frankly, terrified. Absolutely. Now, um, we'll leave them. Uh, there's more stories about Harp and Arrest, but let's, we cut away from that. Back to the main 520 positions. Most of them still don't know what's happening. Um, the uh, B Troop are facing south towards where the action was, but they don't know that. D Troop was facing west. Now, Bill Hutton, what was Bill doing at this time? Uh, what, what, what do you imagine? I'm going to be Bill Hutton, but what was I doing? Well, he's literally caught with his pants down. <gasps> Gary, what are you saying? Literally or figuratively? Well, both. This is Bill Hutton. I'd made myself a permanent lavatory seat out of a petrol tin, all cut with a pear-shaped hole. I took that and a spade, dug myself a little hole, put this seat on top of it, and I was sat on it reading some magazine. <laughs> I was sitting there, and in the sand round me, there were bits of stuff flying up all round me. <laughs> what the bloody hell's that? I couldn't hear any bangs or whistles. I thought, some buggers shooting at me. I could see a tank way back on the horizon. I presumed it was one of ours practising, trying his gun out and not seeing me. I smartly pulled me trousers up. All of a sudden, one of the new officers came rushing up and said, we want every spare man to help dig the guns in. Well, it's all happening very quickly again, isn't it? Do you think they're ready? No. They've got no warning it's an impossible situation, isn't it? And, and there's very little resistance. Uh, there is, however, one great uh, uh, story of, of, uh, of the resistance put up by a Sergeant Fred Taylor. I think he gets a DCM for this. But the uh, Herbert Bonello saw it. So tell us what happened. Uh, you're going to be you're going to be Second Lieutenant Herbert Bonello. He was five twenty battery. It was an amazing thing. He did an open sight action all on his own because most of his chaps had been killed. He hit this tank. It seemed to me to be so close, 50 yards, and it was just like a knife going through butter. The turret came straight off and bounced at the back. The driver went on and hit a limber. I think everyone else in the tank had been killed. Now this, this one of the reasons I love oral history is you get sometimes a real story. Sometimes the real story is different. Uh, I'm not saying it's worse, I'm just saying it's different. And this, uh, the, in the uh, regimental history of the South of Cesars, uh, this is uh, described as his Parthian shot. But Bill Hutton later on heard the uh, the real story of what happened from Fred Taylor himself. Sadly, I was unable to interview him. He died before we did the project. But this is what Bill Hutton said. 
Hey, McNamara was Taylor's gunlayer, and this tank was coming straight for the gun. McNamara looked through his telescopic sight, and the thing was so near he couldn't see anything, just a grey mass. Fred Taylor was telling him to fire, and he turned round to Fred off his gun seat and said, I can't see a fucking thing. Taylor said, pull the bloody trigger, man. He pulled the trigger, just as the tank was going to climb over the gun. It blew the turret right off and killed everybody in the tank. It carried on and climbed over the gun. So the stories aren't particularly different. It's just a more human uh, approach, I think. Uh, and that, we'll have another example of this later on. Now, their positions are, are now being overrun. The tanks, they're, they're able to use their machine guns. And you're going to be Bonello now, aren't you? And and, and he's trapped in a slit trench. Uh, what way? Well, for the rest of his life, he pondered whether they might have escaped if they'd been given different orders. And, and he says there were two distinctly different orders. One said action and one said scarper. Too late for me. I should have gone. Gone like lightning. Clearly, the attack was coming from the south and it was too late to go back towards Cairo. You had to go towards the coastline north. We should have gone much sooner. When do you scarper? When do you go into action? That was the biggest worry. That's the nightmare. And he was taken prisoner. Uh, now, they managed uh, Charles Bennett, uh, Captain Charles Bennett, an old NCO. Uh, uh, some of the very best officers, uh, are, are, uh, as we like to mention Chris Carlin at this point in our interviews, some of the very, very best officers were uh, former senior NCOs, aren't they, uh, Gary? I think you'd agree with that. I would agree. Uh, and uh, Charles Bennett was a, a splendid officer and he, he got the, the, a lot of the uh, damaged lorries and, said, and got away a lot of them. Um, and uh, Gunner Ernie Hurry said this about, about Bennett's efforts. Captain Bennett, he stood up in his vehicle with a blue flag, which meant everybody was to withdraw. I went back on the gun position and picked up three or four signalers. Bruce Meakin was one of them. I'd got them on the running boards as well. I was fired at and chased by one of the German tanks. I could see the machine gun bullets spurting in the ground in front of me. I put speed on and kept going. He was lucky. He was very lucky because a machine gun would just tear through a lorry and, and tear it to bits. Now, Bill Hotton, he's still in his slit trench. And this is just one of the great quotes of oral history. I think you loved this as well, didn't you? This is what Bill Hotton said. Uh, I could hear this squeaking, creaking noise that tanks make. I bobbed my head up, and I soon put it down quick again. They've got dirty big black crosses. Three German tanks, all within damn nigh, damn nigh spitting distance. Our guns are shooting these tanks, and they're shooting at our guns. All bloody hell was let loose. There's a hell of a difference from being in action with one of your pals, so that you can make silly jokes about it. But being on your own, it's a different cup of tea altogether. I sat in there and I thought, if I was Eric or Flynn, Errol Flynn, and I'd got some sticky bombs. I'd get a perfect. I'd got a perfect chance to put all these tanks out of action. Well, thank God I hadn't got any sticky bombs. <laughs> and I just find that just such a, a wonderful, wonderful quote in so many ways. Uh, uh, spotting what it's like being on your own, and and also just the humour again. Uh, Hutton and most of the rest surrendered uh, the, 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 when the fighting was over. Uh, he later on escaped, as did so many others, because the Germans aren't really watching the prisoners. Now, while this fighting's raged, 
some 15 miles away, 425 and 426 batteries. They're still by the Knightsbridge uh, crossroads. And they get the alarm, and there's a terrible flap. Uh, and 425 battery moves off uh, following the third, uh, third City of London yeomanry. There's a load of moving about. And then they fell back to take up positions almost where they started at, facing south and next to the Knightsbridge box, which was being held by the 201 Guards Brigade, hence Knightsbridge, I suspect, uh, with alongside them the Escape D Troop from 520 Battery. Now, there's lot, in the desert you get mirages, you get it's, it's dusty, you've got distortions. It, they could just about see some strange shapes come in. There'd be the German panzers. And this is uh, Sergeant John Walker, a 425 battery. And he says this, Willie Pringle, our captain, a Scotsman, walked along and, and said, under no circumstances must you fire until you're given an order. The heat haze slowly dissolved itself into physical things. On the horizon, you saw a vehicle which looked like a shadow and the heat haze made it jump up and down and slowly it became a vehicle, a tank. We simply looked at this in silence. The men stayed under, well, you could call it cover if you like. The gun shield wouldn't stop out, uh, as they would say in that Derbyshire accent. And Bill Pringle, who is a, a fabulous officer, he planned to hold his fire until the, the panzers were close, close range where they could be hit with certainty. And this is you being Captain William Pringle. Which accent are you using? Are you using your broad Scottish accent for this? Yeah, William Pringle was a Scotsman. He was from Edinburgh, so basically he was English. Yeah, that's fair enough, I think. The German tanks wouldn't face concentrated 25-pounder fire when they got within close range. You had to be sure to get more accuracy. I prefer high explosive. It's more universal. Armour piercing is no good over distances because it's, it must have a flat trajectory. If you don't hit the tank with AP, it's a complete waste. But if an HE shell lands quite close to a tank, it's pretty noisy inside with the bits of shell hitting. It might damage some of the trolley wheels that the tracks run on. It might even burst a track. It could kill the interior occupant. The sort of blast. Yeah. Now, what's the disadvantage of holding fire till uh, till they're right close to you when well, you're certain you can hit them? Well, what what could the disadvantage be, Gary? Well, the obvious one is that the gunners themselves then are within range of the machine guns. So the tanks, not just of the tanks, uh, not just main of the armament, main arm, arm, armament, but of the machine guns. Their whole machine guns. Yeah. Oh dear. Now uh, you're going to be Ted Holmes. Now, Ted Holmes was a grave digger uh, when I interviewed him. He was he, from Hasland. He, he did the grave digging in Hasland Church, and uh, I remember saying, "Why did why did you, you're a grave digger? Why did you never never move south and achieve and achieve perfect happiness, burying southerners?" And he said, "No," he said, "I've." I decided to stay in Chesterfield. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. That, that's hilarious. Thanks for that, Pete. So, Gunner Ted Holmes. They were machine gunning along the front of our guns, hitting the wheels and gun shields everywhere with bullets pinging off. These tanks came a bit closer. We got a round-up the spout ready. We'd been told to load, but not fire until they came in close. We hadn't got to fire until we could see the whites of their eyes. Daft. We had to just sit there. I remember this Irish gun layer saying, 
I wish they'd let us fire. I've got two in me sights. <laughs> two in his sights. I'd <laughs> like to see how that's possible. Uh, this is the inevitable perspective. Actually, I'm sure Pringle's right to hold fire, but of course the lads are thinking that. The lads are thinking... <laughs> anyway, Sergeant uh, John Walker, 425 Battery, says, We're under hail of machine gun bullets, and, uh, and we lost fairly quickly the layer on the next gun to me, and one of my team got a bullet through his leg, lying there being shot at by machine guns. George Otwell, Atwell rather, he stood at the side of me and I said, For God's sake, George, get down, you'll get hit. He didn't say a word. He just carried on, standing, staying there. There were bullets streaming into my limber. It didn't blow anything up, but they were hitting it just a yard to the left of where I was. And I thought, well, you're a better man than me, George. And yet, why shouldn't I be like that? <laughs> that was exactly the feeling. He did inspire you. Then we were told to take post. Now they're going to open fire now. This is the moment. And at last the guns blaze out. And and once they start firing, bugger the officers, it's just about the gun sergeants controlling their gun, picking the target that was most dangerous to them in front of them. There's no orders really then, it's just fire, fire, fire. And John Walker said this, I would pick the target and then help lift the trail round to get it onto the one I wanted. We were all scared to hell, but we were not scared in the least once we started firing. The first one that we hit, the whole tank went red. Maglea, Frank Bush, threw his hat in the air. Willie Pringle said in his Scotch accent, Oh, oh, Gary. Oh, Gary. <laughs> Never mind that. Get another one. What? what? <laughs> Never mind that. Get another one. He seems to have been Scottish. Of Cornish descent. I thought he was a pirate. <laughs> now, the, 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 the German tanks, are, they're, they're hitting German tanks. The German tanks are starting to hit them. And this is uh, Ted Holmes. Uh, what does he say? If you hit him, it's okay. But meantime, he's firing at you with his gun and machine gunning you at the same time, twisting and turning, zigzagging towards you. We got one or two shots off when this one hit us. I believe it was an 88mm from a tank. There was such a lot of velocity with them that the first you knew about them was when it had got you. It dropped just underneath the gun shield, as far as I know. I was on the left-hand side of the gun, where you load up with your right hand, crouched down, my head right under the gun layer's seat, with this 25-pound around, ready to load up again. It was just like someone gave me a big bang on the shoulder. My arm went all dead. It was just like a bit of old rope, just hanging all sort of any road. You could see the bones through me flesh. I reeled away. And he staggers off and, and he, he gets back to the regimental aid post. And he, he recovers. He, he comes back as a driver. He, he, he can't do gun. He can't manage the physical thing, but he becomes a driver for the regiment later on. Uh, now, they've got casualties, but they hold firm. And the tanks are forced to retire when they got close to the guns. Uh, it, it was a good demonstration of the power of artillery. We'd seen this at, at Tobruk again. The guns cannot, guns can deal with artillery with tanks sorry i'm getting muddled up there but guns can deal with tanks uh, as long as they don't get too close it's a close run thing now but there's another incident i loved and this is a, another incident that sort of shows life and this is uh, the, this day is, is is about peter birkin's op team of 425 battery and uh, that day the lance sergeant ted whittaker and gunner david worley they're part of uh, birkin's op team and Peter Birkin goes forward to liaise with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Grafley Graf Smith of the 3rd uh, County of London Yeomanry. 
Now there, he's there to provide the artillery support required by the squadrons of Grant and Crusader tanks. Now this this is wonderful. It's a great account. So take us through it, Gary. This is what Whitaker says. Ted Whitaker, four two five magic. What does Ted say? It was more than a bit exciting because you could see through the binoculars these big grey monsters with umpteen times more range. German tanks. We were bringing fire down, coordinating it. Wherever the colonel went, we stuck close to him. It was absolute chaos. A scrap, then fall back, because our tanks were no match for these Germans. They were outgunned. Now, at one point, uh, Whitaker, Bur- B- Peter Birkin and uh, good old Dave Worley find themselves right in, in, in this, uh, this Harmon, Mar- Harmon Harrington this useless armoured car thing with no turret, right in the middle of a tank battle. There's, there's shells, bullets flying all around them. And then suddenly there's disaster because the Marmon Harrington lurches wildly to one side. And what's happened is a tyre has been burst. Now, in the regimental history, what, how, how does the regimental history... Uh, this is by uh, Dobson, uh, 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 an officer of the regiment. Uh, how does Dobson uh, describe what happened? Though the car drew intense enemy fire... Gunner Worley coolly changed the wheel under a hail of small arms fire. Is that what really happened, do you think, Gary? Is that what really happened? Well, this uh, is what Lance Sergeant Ted Whittaker said. Is it said. the same, Gary? Is it the same? Is it the same? David Worley said something gentle like, What the fucking hell's happened to us? We hopped out and we got a puncture, front wheel. Major Birkin said, Change the bloody wheel! Machine gun bullets were landing round us. One or two did hit the car with a bit of a rattle. If they'd been closer, they'd go through it. You can imagine. We couldn't get the spare wheel off. I don't know whether it was because we were terrified or if the nuts were tight. Talk about fingers and thumbs. We finally got the spare wheel off. Then jacking up an armoured car, it's heavy, we were frantic. We got this ruddy wheel off. We put two wheel bolts on and Dave said to me, What do you reckon? I said, in the bloody car. We hopped in. The Major said, OK, and off we went. Now, uh, what did later investigation reveal? Uh, the, uh, what the Dave Worley had managed to do? He'd managed to cross-thread both nuts. So when, when, when he said that Gunner Worley coolly changed the wheel under a hail of small arms fire, would you say in a state of absolute panic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and who blames him? No one. I mean, that's absolutely understandable. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd have just driven on with the flat tire, frankly. You know. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I must admit when I first heard that. But that is a wonderful. And again, this shows you the difference between what you get in an officially sanctioned everything's rosy in the garden, <laughs> and if anything happens, it's somebody else's fault, not a member of the regiment. And the the reality that the lads will tell you, uh, just as interesting, just as in a way, just as brave. In the end, these two guys still got out of the armoured car. Still did it. And still did it. Uh, were they cool? Well, would you expect them to be cool? I wouldn't be bloody cool. I wouldn't be there. I've been running, I expect. Uh, so I've got... It's a wonderful perspective of what's happening, in my view. Um, now, uh, 426 Battery, they move forward to support 4th fourth, uh, fourth, uh, City of London Yeomanry. And, and they too are in a series of fighting withdrawals. Each squadron of tanks falling back, covered by the 25-pounders. Um, now, we're coming to an end of this part of the battle because the battle sort of, it, it packs up. Because actually, the, the British are doing quite well because uh, the, the, the South Dutch Hussars then form part of an outer defensive ring 
uh, which 22nd Armour Brigade supplies to the Knightsbridge Box, which, as I mentioned, inside the wire of the Knightsbridge Box was the 201st Brigade, uh, Art Brigade, 201st Guards Brigade, and the 2nd Royal Horse Artillery, a fine body of men, and uh, well aware of it too, 2nd IHA. Um, they, 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 it seemed as if they'd survived the storm, doesn't it? They, they, and they'd done well, hadn't they? Because although they'd been surprised, although uh, B Troop had been wiped out, uh, they provided a, a stiff resistance. They had helped the tanks to fight back. The Germans have been suffering casualties and, and the battle is up in the air, isn't it, at this stage? Uh, the, the Germans hadn't been able to burst through the, uh, the, the front line, the 13th Corps front line at all. Uh, so their, their communications stretch all the way round by Beerhamit, where, by the way, the French, free French are still holding out. So there's another embuggerance to the Germans there. So it's all, it's all up in the air at this point. Uh, and uh, the next podcast will we'll deal with the second part of the Battle of Knightsbridge. Now, if you've enjoyed what you're listening to, then I hope you will consider, uh, consider, uh, you know what I'm going to say, Gary, buying the my, my book uh, uh, at close range, which is the story of the South Nazis' of, of, of a regimental and uh, a, a regiment of artillery in the Second World War. At the moment, uh, you can buy now, you can buy the uh, audio version, uh, uh, which is, which I think is fab. Um, Certainly had some good feedback from those people that have left good it. Uh, uh, and in uh, January, the book the book itself is coming out, which uh, Gary uses as a in his garage to to. Uh, uh, well, I don't know what you use it for in your garage. Uh, you haven't got a garage. No, so, I use it as a garage. Use, <laughs> use the book as a garage. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Um, so I hope you'll bear that in mind. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to doing the next episode because that will be next week. We're, we're not having a gap between these because we want to tell the story in one. So the very next week from when you hear this, you'll be able to hear what happens to South Nazis. I mean, they're still doing fine, aren't they? Nothing. I mean, B Troop have had a terrible time. There's been deaths and casualties, but they're doing well, aren't they? What can go wrong? And, well, they've they've basically managed the uh, the full might of what the Germans could throw at them, haven't they? It couldn't possibly be any worse. We'll find out next week. Cheers, Cheers Gary. <laughs> oh, we said that in synchronicity. We are twins. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?